This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Beach at Herculaneum, and the author is Susan G. Muth, and Susan joins us on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Susan. Hi. Great to have you with us. Uh, This is going to be one of those discussions about a book that is going to stretch everyone's imagination because that's the kind of imagination you have. You're going to take us all the way back to 79 A.D. when the great volcano Vesuvius erupted and somehow it ties to modern times with Anne McCarthy. She doesn't understand how she's going to interact with Daphne from 79 A.D., but that's what you have done. Sounds strange, I know, but that's what I've done. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Susan, and and how you came up with this story. Well, I am a pretty eclectic person. In in the old days, in the 1500s, they'd have called me a Renaissance woman, but nowadays I'm just kind of a dilettante. Um, I have been a history buff all my life. In fact, when I was a little girl, I used to go down into the basement when I couldn't sleep at night and read my parents' college textbooks about history and especially about this um, early Roman Empire period. Um, so it is something that every time I see um, anything about it, I'll pick it up and read it immediately. Um, also, I have, um, you know, I've been a theater director for a number of years, and my MFA is in drama. And so I have, um, and I like historical plays, Shakespeare, of course, being my favorite. And um, so that has intensified my interest not only in historical periods, but also in the, the dramatic events that really have a profound effect on people. Um, so, one day, I picked up an old National Geographic that somebody was throwing away, and um, there was a story about the archaeologists who were uh, excavating a new area of the Roman town of Herculaneum. <laughs> For people who may not be as into it as I am, that, is, that was a town near Pompeii that was also destroyed in the, in the 79 AD Vesuvius eruption. And... Um, and it was a beautiful town, too. That's why it strikes me as so poignant. It, it was a resort, uh, very lovely views of the sea and so on. Anyway, I was reading this, and they had found two skeletons in particular that they were interested in. One of them was a woman, they thought probably uh, mid to late 20s, and she was a, uh, a beautiful woman, according to the, um, the bone structure. And then they were also very interested in another skeleton of a soldier. He was not wearing armor. That is to say he was not armed. But he was um, in military armor, and he had um, building equipment on him, uh, hammers and chisels and things like that. So my imagination, as you mentioned, being kind of 
wild sometimes, got working on what, who were these two people and what were they doing on the beach in close proximity um, at that moment when the end came. And um, from that, I, I got my character Daphne and her soldier husband, Marcus. They are, um, they're characters, they're definitely Roman. They don't think exactly the way we do. But they have a very, um, you know, the, the emotions that they feel and the, um, uh, the way they think is um, accessible to us. At least that's the way I portrayed them. I have gone through um, Hurricane Katrina, which was devastating to the area where I live. I live in the New Orleans area. And um, I had, from that experience, a, an inkling of what it would be like to be involved in something like the Vesuvius eruption. Of course, the, the two events were radically different, but that feeling of being helpless and being just blindsided by um, something that you never imagined. All of, one day everything's okay, the next day everything is totally turned upside down. And um, I also had a good look at the post-traumatic distress that so many people I knew went through. Some have, have never recovered. Um, it is, it's hard to describe to anyone who hasn't been to it. I'm sure the people, you know, in New York and New Jersey know what I mean, though. And, um, so to me, the event felt very real and very contemporary in terms of, you know, my sensibilities. And then I have another character, Anne. Now, it seems totally unrelated, and I know, um, it might sound strange to some people, but I found a a strong affinity between these two characters. Anne is a person who lost her husband and son in a um, in an auto accident. Very, very sudden. They were uh, husband and son were on their way to the beach for the afternoon while she set up a surprise party for the little boy. And um, she just absolutely was traumatized to the point of going emotionally catatonic. Well, this story um, arose from something that happened when I was in undergraduate school. A woman, uh, a girl my age, who was living down down the hall from me with her newly white husband, <clears throat> all of a sudden lost her husband in a car crash. And um, I didn't know her well, but she wanted to talk about it. And she invited me to come next door and look at her wedding pictures and her scrapbooks and, and listen, you know, to her stories about her husband and, and then talk about the accident. And I, as she was talking, I, I desperately wanted to say or do something that would make her feel better, but I didn't even feel comfortable in embracing her because as she talked, I felt her just getting further and further away rather than closer. And I've never felt so impotent I like to think of myself as being empathic and, you know, being able to understand people, but I just wasn't able to do a thing for her. I just felt her kind of slipping away into the past rather than wanting to come into the present. And it's always haunted me that I was so ineffective in, in helping this woman. 
And that's where Anne's story comes from, because Anne goes way into herself. She just cocoons in this little uh, withdrawn world where she can't, doesn't want to, and couldn't if she wanted to, really connect with other people. She's just, uh, she's gone emotionally catatonic. And both she and Daphne, who is now kind of lingering somewhere in the afterworld, are lost. They're stuck. Somehow or other, they connect. I have various theories that I offer in the course of the novel that will um, uh, get people, you know, uh, will wait to hang on to this rationally. There are, there's some science for such a possibility, um, quantum physics and so on. But anyway, um, so they, they link. And so that Anne is experiencing what Daphne went through in the eruption. And Daphne is picking up snatches of Anne's experience. And the two personalities almost, you could say, merge at the end. Daphne's too volatile, too open with her emotions, and Anne is just emotionally frozen. And between the two of them, they make a reasonably healthy person. But uh, they have to somehow come together in order for that to, to happen. So this story yeah. story is a lot is a lot about courage. Yes, yes, that is probably the main theme. The whole idea is that you can't control the um, the events like Vesuvius and like Katrina that can just come out of nowhere. You, those things are out of your control. You can prepare, but not necessarily, not always. And um, what you can do, though, is to, you can get back on the horse, as they say. You cannot let those things cripple you. Um, Anne has just, is actively present, preventing herself from uh, relating emotionally to anyone again. She lost her parents when she was young, and then she lost her husband and son. She does not ever want to be emotionally attached to anyone or anything again. And what that really is, is fear. It's the fear of being hurt again. Well, everyone maybe hasn't gone through something that catastrophic, but they, everyone has had terrible heartbreak at some time in their life when they, the temptation was to just withdraw and um, not want to um, put themselves in a position where they have to ever go through that again. And just does that to the extreme. Um, so, and, and Daphne has to also move on because she never found out what happened to her little boy in the eruption. And she has to be able to, to face the whole thing and move on herself, letting it go. So, also, um, I have a love story in there. It's not a romance as such because in a romance, the whole point of the story is about the love affair. But in this book, the love interest, Michael, is who is an archaeologist, 
is the catalyst for Anne to come out of her shell and finally open her emotions again. And he's the one that, that tells her, you've got to have courage. And she rebuffs it. She won't have any of it. And finally, uh, you know, in the end, she has to come to terms with it and decide if she's strong enough to do that. Um, so I guess it's about how to save yourself from being destroyed by a disaster in your life. You know, just uh, take yourself by the shoulders and, and get out there and allow yourself to be vulnerable again so that you can live. Now, you also talk about rituals, not so much spiritual, but rituals that uh, that is important to the plot? Yes. the um, Both Anne and Daphne are um, deeply religious in, in very different ways. Um, Anne is a, is a staunch Catholic, and she even tries to go into a convent after the loss of her, of her husband and son, largely so that she doesn't have to face the world anymore. She, um, her, she reduces her religious faith and her spirituality down to <clears throat> observing the rituals of Catholicism, and then she is distraught because those things don't work. She just, um, she isn't hitting... She isn't hitting any place inside of her with her religious practices. She is just mumbling words, and she knows it, but she doesn't want to to let go because that's all she has that feels stable in her life. But her spirituality it has been shattered. Daphne is a pagan, um, a very... Um, devoted worshiper of the goddess Aphrodite, which she calls by the Greek name because she is an ex-Greek slave. And she also is very much um, into the rituals involved in, you know, making appropriate sacrifice and saying the right kind of prayers. And for her, when it gets right down to the moment when the eruption is imminent, it's not working for her either. Um, both of them have have missed the mark as far as true spirituality is concerned. Um, my feeling is that, at least in my novel, they are like many people who don't really get below the surface of the of the ritual involved in in any religion, and that this I think is true of, of virtually any organized religion. Um, not that I am anti-religion or organized religion for that matter. If it if it draws on your spirituality, but many people I think kind of lose that at some point and thinks that the ritual, you know, going to church at a certain time of the week and saying the required um, liturgies and going through the motions is enough to satisfy their, you know, their inner being. And I think that that this experience that my two characters have um, of getting past that is something maybe that um, that many people could look at and. And I know it's it's true for me that I became somewhat disenchanted at, at one point in my life because I didn't feel like I was getting anything out of 
uh, you know, the ritualized nature of of going to church and, and saying standard prayers and so forth, I stopped with it altogether because I just felt like it was um, too shallow. But if you get past that and change your expectations um, in the face of, of important, you know, life-changing events, um, I think it all starts to make sense to you again. And whether or not you go back to church or whether you um, have, um, you know, satisfaction from doing those things that you did before, well, it's you feel connected to the underlying thread in all religions, which is um, being linked to something that is more than just the here and now, more than just the um, the everyday experience that we all have. Uh, and that is something that helps you have that courage that I talked about earlier. Susan G. Muth is the author. Uh, certainly her explanation, we can all understand that this is an intriguing, fascinating book, uh, a page-turner. Susan, tell us how to get your book, The Beach at Herculaneum. Well, it's available at the iUniverse site, and it is also available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. Um, I think it's a, it can be, it'll arrive quickly if you order from any of those sources because it is available as print on demand. And um, most people that have ordered get it in about three days. Um, also, in my home market, I am doing readings and book signings at uh, some of the local Barnes & Noble um, uh, activity, um, you know, outlets. And... Um, then I do have also a website, susangenews.com, where you can order the book directly. So um, it's pretty easy to get your hands on, and um, it's a very quick read. Most people tell me, in fact, several people have told me that um, they end up reading it all in one sitting over the course of the day because, as you say, it is kind of a great page turner. You you know, you just want to find out what happens next. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I really hope that people read it and enjoy it and I don't want to give the impression that it's a that it's a downer that it has a gloomy ending it sounds like a lot of bad events but in the end it's very life affirming well thank you Susan thank you for the explanation and thank you for sharing your book on iUniverse Radio thank you very much for your call You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. 
evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I movie.com and TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, From a Distance, and the author is Vernon Bargainer, and Vernon joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Vernon. Hello, and it's my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for calling. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, you've become a, a writer in your uh, retirement years, and though you wrote all your life, didn't you? I wrote technical material in my career, 40-year career in human relations. But this is a love story. You say it would touch the hearts of readers, uh, one that will linger a while in their minds, and it just kind of comes out of your deep interest in life, and it's got a real twist to it. So before we get into all the characters of, of this from a distance, tell us about why you wrote it. Well, uh, I wrote it simply because I wanted to tell a love story to begin with. And secondly, I wanted to tell one that where boy and girl struggle to, to uh, weave their way through some modern-day pressures and particularly psychological influences because I'm troubled by that, having read a lot of things that are tragic from the media. And I felt that those, when, when it's been announced that something terrible has happened to the life of someone, uh, uh, that's a fleeting kind of headline. It doesn't linger. And it was my hope that if I put readers in the hearts and minds of some people really struggling with those issues, that the story would linger and maybe even cause some people to notice, take up and notice things are going on in their families and therefore not miss signs of trouble. So it's a, it's a long-winded answer. But. No, that was really good. It's a story of a girl suffering, as you put it, from a shattered dream. And then, of course, the story of a boy who comes into her life uninvited uh, in an attempt to rescue her. Yes, he does. Uh, this It's sort of a fairy tale-like beginning for these two. Because he stands at the top of a deep meadow one day, quite coincidentally, as this little girl with the stigma placed on her life is frolicking around deep in the meadow, and somehow he feels her. Okay, so he becomes so thoroughly intrigued with her. And so they, at some point, of course, they're going to meet, and it's going to be, again, a, a magical kind of meeting like it started at... But little, little did they suspect at that moment that ultimately they would walk along 
long, tough, weary road together, things really start to happen. And, and their love is led to the brink of doom. And these magical conditions that embraced their meeting soon crumble, and they, they, it threatens their lives, really, they, certainly their love. And um, I thought that intensity would help to make the readers keep reading and take a look at life and their relationship to people in their lives. So Sarah Locke is running for her life. Yes, the the impetus for that particular feature in the story is on her wedding night, she is subjected to spousal abuse. And it occurred with such intensity, and it came about as such an extraordinary surprise that she knew she had to run then or it would happen again. So she goes into hiding. And that that wedding occurred as a, a result of a dream that she'd had, that someday she'd be loved, that she'd find someone who'd really want to care for her. This would help her psychologically to overcome a stigma placed on her when she was nine years old. And... Uh, so, yes, that's why she runs. And she finds her way to her Aunt Gina's home. Yeah, her aunt, because she lives out in the country, away from the hubbub of life. And uh, just a good place to hide. Nobody would ever think to look for her there. And she, while there, starts trying to recover her own psyche. And that's why she wanders into the meadow every day. She she communes with nature. It's healing for her. Little did she know that this young man would one day stand at the top of that meadow and feast his eyes on his what he comes to call her his little ballerina, his little meadow ballerina. And he's standing up there. He just feels her rapture somehow. It sounds incredible, but he does. So, yes, that's what she does in hiding to try to regroup, find her place. Well, the husband must be looking for her. He's looking for her. She had uh, run away to Oklahoma City, believing that nobody would ever think to look for her out there. And then immediately she returns to Dallas, again believing, well, nobody will ever think to look for me in the place I ran from, particularly when I left the car in Oklahoma City for them to trace. Anyway... um, Yes, her husband comes after her. He turns out to be quite a villain in the story. I had one reader who really got mad at me because I didn't take, I didn't have someone beat the tar out of this guy. <laughs> right. And I, but the story is not him, Steve. Right. The story is of Sarah. Mm-hmm. So whatever happens to him doesn't matter to my story. It may be to others who, you know, have that curiosity. They just want the bad guy to get the hell beat out of him. But this story is about Sarah and how she ultimately deals with her problem, if in fact she does. Well, you're really uh, talking about real people in real situations. Yes. That's why I thought these characters are realistic. And, Steve, they're realistic because they're flawed they have flaws in their character. You take Sarah. 
by the way, if I might digress just for a second, as an author, you know, there's a couple of ways to start writing a fiction story. One, particularly in crime stories, crime novels, whodunit type narratives, uh, the author will engineer a plot, create a plot, and then find some people to put in it. Another way is the one that I'm comfortable with in which I dream up the characters first and then I find something for them to do. <laughs> and in this case, I created Sarah. When I finished, I realized she was too perfect. I mean, so I had to give her a flaw. And that flaw became the stigma placed on her and led to the shattered dream. And that flaw takes over the story. I didn't intend that. But if you develop your characters first... Those personalities will shape the plot. And so it, if, you're, if I'm consistent with my characters and I watch what they're thinking and watch what they're doing, they'll tell me where to send them. They will, make the, they will turn the plot this way and that. So Sarah, Sarah is she's pretty and she's very she's brilliant, talented. She's uh, witty, very witty. She's also caring and warm-hearted and giving. But, Steve, she's stubborn, and she's uh, maladjusted. Let's face it, Sarah is right on the edge of a full-blown neurosis, all stemming from something that was not attended to by people in her life when she was nine years old. At that time, she was told that IQ tests showed she was retarded. She couldn't live with that. So to compensate for it, she dreamed of somebody loving her someday in spite of that shame. So that's the characters are the force in my story. They are they determine everything that happens. And they are they are the story. The story begins, unfolds and ends in these characters, the families and the particularly our hero and heroine. The two Lovers. You also say that some readers may be uncomfortable with the way you uh, treat emotional illness and even the issue of suicide. I'm, I feel pretty sure that some readers will want to take me to task for even broaching those subjects. You know, um, people are uncomfortable with uh, emotional illness. So many of us think that well, actually mental illness doesn't even qualify as a legitimate sickness. So just let, don't pay attention to it. Nothing, it'll correct itself. And so I just, in our story, my heroine and hero, um, by virtue of their trying to live their lives, bring out those issues. It's not something that I wanted to, I didn't set out to write an essay on suicide and emotional illness. But it comes out, and as it had to, as a writer, I have to tell what happens, and that's that's why this this occurs. Um, so I just uh, had it happen. I know that's going to be a controversial matter, and what what bothers me about the fact that it might be controversial is that, you know, families are wonderful and unique, and they are bonded by love so much so that they come to take each other for granted to the point where they miss signs of trouble. And that's what I'm trying to bring out in this, in this story. 
they, we'll, we have a tendency to say, oh, well, Scotty, Scotty, he's just going through a stage. Better pay attention to those stages. Could indicate something. Suicide is a very real thing in our world today. And when we read in the newspaper that 3,500 people committed suicide in the Texas in last year, uh, we are stunned. But, Steve, we forget it. And I was hoping this people would become so captivated by the the lives of these people in there that this would linger and it would bring it so realistic to their lives that they would do something, at least be on the lookout. Well, Sarah's not only on the run from her husband, but she ends up being on the run from the police. She does probably the most dramatic scene. At a point in time, Sarah and the newfound boyfriend um, fall in love. And um, one day, she, she has been through so much. She's been through three court procedures, her husband nipping at her tail all the time, bringing up one kind of charge or another. And they have worn on her to the point where she's about ready to surrender. And this one time, she says, I am not going. The police have tried to subpoena her. They've tried to get her to come in. She won't do it. And one day, she got a it's so a call from her lawyer saying that the police are on their way out to arrest her at her hideaway home. And she sets off running. She's just simply going to run away. In an instant, and at, under the exact right circumstances, her, her sweetheart, Kevin, finds out about her. And he literally streaks away. To, he, he, he chases her down, forcefully chases her down while she's running away. And when she, he, she hears him coming, Hears his feet pounding on the desert floor and just, just crumples to the ground, throws her hands upon her heads and starts screaming. He gets up to her and he's trying to console her and she's screaming at him, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Please go away. And he says, Sarah, you'll never, you'll never be free if you run. And she keeps screaming at him, beating on him, beating on his chest. He finally just shoots her arm under her, under her knees and pushes one around her back and he pushes up with his legs and he, Starts to the house with her all the time. Her screaming has subsided, but she's still shaking, almost shaking so much she'll fall out of his arms. And he cuddles her close, and she's still sobbing. He takes her to the house, and he lays her on the couch. And, she's, and in just a moment, Steve, she curls into a little fetal position, still shaking and sobbing, just as the police knock at the door. That's probably the most intense scene it's not the most poignant. Sounds like it might be, but the most intense scene is, is that one. And it's a pivotal scene. I, I would say that probably the most poignant scene is when she kisses her violin, the actual the treasure of her life. She kisses it goodbye one day, alone in her room, and uh, teary-eyed. She's going to give it to Kevin, her sweetheart. And the reader knows at that point that she's planning something bad. And this is a sign people miss a lot of times in family members. When someone in the family, particularly a young person, starts giving away personal possessions, treasured possessions, look out. They may be thinking about giving up their lives. This may be a form of surrender. I'm not saying it will always be that way. It was in this story, and it often is. 
there are other signs of suicidal tendencies, though, but this is a serious matter. It was just simply my hope that the story will, would bring it out such, in such a way that people won't forget about this. We can do something about this. We've been listening to Vernon Bargainer. He is the author of his book, From a Distance. Uh, Vernon, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on the Internet and just about all Internet retailers. It's, uh, retail bookstores, Barnes & Nobles and others can order it. Also, but probably the fastest source is like Amazon.com, iUniverse.com, uh, and Barnes and Noble. All the retailers have the book listed, and uh, you can see pictures of it, the uh, synopsis of the story and that. Also... I have a website called vernonbargainer.com, where Vernon Bargainer is one word. And it gives some, some interesting information about it and tells you how to get it, how to get the book. Thank you, Vernon, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. It's certainly been my pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 or 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Roxana's Revolution, and the author is Farron Powell, and Farron joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Farron. Hello, how are you? Great to have you with us. This is an intense book. You take us back to the hostage crisis of 1979 in Tehran, and, uh, of course, we've got some characters that uh, you're going to talk about with us, uh, how the role they play uh, during that very traumatic and dramatic time. 
You say this about your book. It's about the struggle of a career woman caught in revolution and war. Of course, it takes us back to that great year of 1979. Of course, the news was filled with all that was going on there. And, and she's a Wall Street attorney, and uh, she's had some incredible experiences that lead her uh, back to Tehran, and then she has this near-death experience and ends up in a marriage that is doomed, and, and it just, it's, it's a page-turner. Uh, it's got Saddam Hussein's nightly bombing of, of the country. I guess it takes us into, what, into the 80s a little bit? Yes. Well, Farron, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll learn more about Roxana and other characters. But tell us about yourself, a little about your background, and why you wrote the book. Well, uh, I'm an attorney, and at the time, I was living in New York City at the time of the hostage crisis. Uh, as you mentioned, the story starts with the hostage crisis of 1979, but I have to tell you that this is not a political uh, story. Uh, and of course, because Roxana's life takes her to uh, from uh, New York City to Paris uh, temporarily, and then to Tehran, and then back into Europe and back into the United States again, uh, he, she's going through all these uh, different times in her life. And of course, uh, she's going through the revolution, and she experiences Saddam Hussein's night, the bombing of Tehran. And of course, you have to cover these things, but. Uh, the, the book, the entire book has probably like uh, 15 pages about the revolution and history, which is spread out through, uh, uh, through some 400 pages of the book. Uh, so this is the story of Roxana and things viewed from Roxana's point of view. She's the protagonist. She's the one who is the center of all the characters. Of course, there are other characters. And uh, this book is fiction but it's a fiction which is based on real events, the hostage-taking, the revolution of 1979 of Iran, and also Saddam Hussein's bombing. So uh, we, can, we can call it a true fiction, maybe. Right. Uh, and, and the story uh, basically uh, concentrates on Rosanna. She's a professional woman. Uh, when uh, President Carter uh, sent all those uh, Valentine cards to the Iranian students, asking them to be deported, to report to the immigration. Roxana was one of them. And, of course, uh, she had established herself here, and she was in the process of becoming a permanent resident. But uh, she decides when the uh, anti-Iranian uh, uh, sentiments, you know, surges and the media frenzy gets out of control, she decides, she decides to go back to Iran. And, of course, uh, once she's there... She realizes that uh, although uh, revolutions are fascinating on a page of a history book, they're very difficult to live with. <laughs> and uh, she tastes the harsh revolutionary rules. And of course, uh, with Saddam Hussein's bombing at, at this point, she's married uh, to a wrong person and has a lot of marital problems. And then she becomes a mother. And she realizes that uh, she cannot live there anymore. So she finds her way back to Europe and from Europe back to the United States. Uh, but she feels that the ghost of uh, the hostage-taking still lingers on here. And she faces some difficulties when she's back in the United States. 
So this is in a nutshell what the story is all about. But of course, there are so many uh, factors and so many uh, things in, and also some other uh, fantastic characters in the story. It's not all about Roxana. It's Roxana and uh, her two childhood friends and also uh, the family, three families, you know. Uh, the movie Argo came uh, uh, way after uh, I had written my novel, but of course, as you know, it takes a long while for for a novel to get published. The process of publication is very lengthy. Uh, so it, it shows that people are still interested in the subject matter, and the success of Argo proves that. And, uh, you know, I, I think... Long, long before Argo, I decided that this was a very interesting year, and the subject was fascinating, so I decided to write about it. Well, especially with a person who really just wants to have a a normal life, Uh, obviously when you're thrown into revolution and also then a war, your life is anything but normal. Absolutely. Right now, uh, I am honestly wondering how the life of a professional woman is in Syria, for example, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. It's very, very difficult. Uh, Professional women uh, don't have it easy, you know, uh, no matter where they live. However, uh, you know, living under harsh revolutionary rules and also uh, nightly bombing, that, that makes it absolutely impossible because you never know whether the next day you're alive or dead. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, Argo had uh, covered one aspect of the hostage-taking and uh, the incidents uh, of the Canadian uh, ambassador uh, rescuing the six hostages who were, the six American diplomats who were at the Canadian embassy. And it's really looking at the hostage crisis through the lens of the Americans. But Roxana's revolution looks at the hostage crisis through the lens of an Iranian and also few families and uh, how the consequences of the hostage-taking on the Iranian people in general and on these three families in particular. And I I think it's really interesting. It should be interesting for an American uh, reader to see how the Iranians felt on the other side, you know, 6,000 miles away when the hostage-taking occurred. And of course, some of the some of the mandatory demands of the new revolutionary government, even as simple as wearing the mandatory veil, but th- that can po- uh, that can pose problems. Yes, yes, it was because uh, at the beginning, the revolutionary, the conser- uh, con- uh, conservative uh, uh, part of the revolutionary. Uh, uh, people, authorities, they really wanted to send all women home, you know, <laughs> to go home and be a good uh, wife and a good mother. But uh, women uh, resisted. Women resisted. Uh, women who were working for the government, they were offered good early retirement packages. And uh, some of them, because they had worked for 20 or 22 years or 24 years, they accepted and they said, okay, you know, uh, I'm going to leave. But a lot of other women stayed, and they said, okay, you know, I wear uh, that scarf and, you know, that uh, kind of uh, revolutionary uniform, which is like a loose raincoat, you know, uh, covering every part of 
the woman's body and all of that, they said, okay, I'm going to wear these, uh, but I'm not going to lose my job and I'm not going to go home and you know, just be happy being a mother or, uh, or a housewife. And also, of course, which is difficult for us to ever imagine unless you're in it, to have a newborn baby and then realize that you're going to be or you're under uh, an attack, a bomb attack, and, and the terror that a mother would feel. Yes, yes. This was, this was one of, uh, you know, uh, parts of the book that was very, very difficult to write. And also there was another part that Roxana's uh, uh, godson gets killed in the hospital uh, because uh, this was the everyday events, you know, happening because Saddam Hussein uh, was even bombing the hospital. And he did bomb a hospital in Shiraz and killed people. And, of course, the nightly bombing, uh, I think the idea was, you know, to scare people and and uh, have them rise against the government and then have another revolution. But this was this is a mistake, and also I think this is a miscalculation of the politicians here. I don't know whether uh, you had ever uh, seen that picture of uh, Mr. Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein in 1983, you know, kind of patting him in the back for his war with Iran. Uh, Saddam Hussein would not have dared to attack Iran because, number one, uh, Iraq was like one-third the size of Iran and like one-third the population of Iran. And uh, he could not do that on his own. But, of course, uh, uh, the United States sold uh, five AVACs to Saudi Arabia. And Saddam Hussein had access to all the intelligence and all the uh, technology. And every time an Iranian plane would, uh, you know, uh, just try to fly, Saddam Hussein could have bombed and you know, uh, target uh, the plane. So uh, it was it was very political, but of course it was miscalculation. And right now the same thing is happening. Like for example, the sanctions. The sanctions. Uh, Iran has been under sanctions since 1979. They don't hurt the government. They don't change the regime. They hurt people. You know. And for those politicians who believe that uh, sanctions is going to force people to uh, revolt and have another government and change their government, it's not going to happen. You know, look at the situation in Cuba. And uh, I hope that Iran doesn't become the Cuba of the Middle East. You know, look at the uh, relationship between the United States and Cuba. Uh, it's been more than half a century, you know, of no relationship and sanctions. But uh, the regime didn't change. So same thing, I think. I believe it's true with uh, the Iranian government. But as I said uh, before, I'm hoping that, you know, with the new president-elect, things will change, you know, like the negotiations uh, would uh, get more serious and hopefully uh, with his uh, plan for uh, his administration, uh, he has promised a lot. And hopefully he would uh, uh, fulfill those promises and, you know, the relationship would resume again because it's a sad thing. Uh, Iran and U.S. had uh, a fabulous relationship for many, many years, and, you know, it had to get interrupted because of the hostage-taking. And the amazing thing is that there are some misconceptions about the hostage-taking. 
first of all, it happened uh, by some uh, radical uh, revolutionary students. And uh, there was rumor in Tehran, when I was in Tehran temporarily for two years, uh, that uh, when the news was taken to Ayatollah Khomeini, he, he was kind of dismissive and he had said, okay, keep them for a few days and let them go. But the media frenzy here, you know, really created a free forum for the religious leader of Iran to uh, voice his grievances against the West, against the superpowers. And uh, I don't know whether you remember, there was this Ted Couple program, you know, uh, yes. uh, Iran... Uh, Prices America held hostage, you know, mm-hmm. night right. after every night. Right, every night, every night, yes. So that was, you know, that created, uh, like, if the leader of a country in the Middle East tries to uh, give uh, his, uh, I mean, lecture the rest of the world, they have to spend millions and millions of dollars, you know, buying ads in the Washington Post or the New York Times or L.A. Times, but this was for free. <laughs> you know, you could just turn your TV and their faces were all over and whatever they had to say. So I think that was one of the reasons that uh, the negotiations behind the door negotiations didn't work. And of course, uh, President Carter also uh, attacked Iran and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a failed uh, mission because the helicopters burned and nothing happened because he had sent uh, the Marines to uh, to the Persian Gulf to rescue the hostages. That didn't happen, and that deteriorated the relationship more and more. We have about a minute left. Tell us about the U.S., well, the uh, Iran U.S. Claims Tribunal. That's an important part of your book. Yes, this is something that has not been uh, addressed in any novel that I know uh, there have been like a dozen novels written, uh, mostly by people who were uh, who had left Iran uh, shortly before the revolution, or had left after the revolution. But Roxana <laughs> goes back to Iran during the time that everybody's escaping from Iran. And uh, one of the things after the hostage negotiations uh, were successful, one of the things. Uh, uh, during that Algerian declaration, Algerian treaty that was signed by both uh, parties, was creation of this Iran-U.S. claims tribunal. And uh, in fact, this was uh, working like uh, each party's embassy in Holland because they were talking to each other face-to-face rather than going through the European allies of the United States. And, you know, they were talking to each other, they were negotiating with each other, and uh, another misconception about the hostage crisis is that it was Iran, who uh, the country that deprived the hostages from bringing uh, lawsuits or damages uh, against uh, Iran in that tribunal. Uh, this is totally wrong because actually it was the U.S. government that deprived them from bringing any kind of lawsuit in that tribunal because uh, I believe that the United States decided that you know it was more important to protect. Uh, the benefit and the rights of the American corporations. Because that tribunal so far, uh, it was established in 1981, January 1981, and for uh, more than 33 years, it handled 3,900 cases, and Iran paid billions and billions and billions of dollars to the American companies. So the the relationship was really good. 
you know, that uh, tribunal was really functioning like a mediator, like an arbitrator between the two countries. And of course, during the presidency of uh, President Khatami, Iran also had a very, very good relationship with the United States. In fact, it was Iran that allowed the United States to use its airspace to attack Afghanistan. You know, maybe a lot of people don't know mm-hmm. that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, well, uh, these well, are some of the misconceptions about uh, the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis. We've been listening to Farron Powell. She's the author of her new book, Roxana's Revolution. Farron, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's uh, it can be purchased on uh, iUniverse.com, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and also Barnes & Noble bookstores can uh, provide the book uh, when it's ordered. Uh, and, of course, for more information, if anybody's interested, I have a website, which is www.farinpowell.com. Farin Powell is one word, F-A-R-I-N-P-O-W-E-L-L. And it has all kinds of information about the books and how to get the books. And, and also my uh, various radio interviews. <laughs> Great. All right, Farron. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much for inviting me. You have a lovely day. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.